I was just scanning across the the two full pages of um, Zoom windows and how amazing it is that we have 35 people connected this morning. Um, it's very amazing and humbling for me. Uh, I Here I am, I'm sitting in a, wearing a rocket suit that was sewn for me by members of our Sangha in Austin. And uh, every time I put it on, I say a, a brief chant invoking the, the uh, wisdom of the Buddhas and invoking the compassion of the Buddhas and promising to wear it in the spirit in which it was made and in the spirit of the, of the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, but I, I know that I am uh, clothed in compassion and in generosity. And that really, for someone like me, who uh, has had a lifetime of, of stewing in feelings of um, being unworthy and uh, not trusting other people, I'll talk about this more later. This is an, an, just an incredible gift and an incredible turn for my life. So I want to start by saying that. So my topic for today is a phrase from the Genjo Koan, the great realization of delusion. And I'm gonna focus on delusion today and uh, Lori is gonna talk tomorrow about liberation and how the aspects that I'm gonna lay out today actually can become a scaffolding for liberation, a way to reach forward into and, and to reach deeply into our own lives and rebuild what there are all these structures that seem to get in our way. So I, I, I just say that again by preface. Uh, the Genja Koan is a letter that a Hei Dogen, the Buddhist teacher in Japan, who had studied in China to bring a different way of practicing Buddhism back to Japan. Uh, it's a letter that he wrote to a lay practitioner in um, the year 1233 in the Common Era, as we, as we know it. Um, and he writes a phrase, those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. So please take a moment to read uh, well, if you can, if you have the chant book uh, on page 34, the Apamata chant book, it's the second paragraph on that page. And just take a moment to read the whole paragraph for the, for the immediate context of it. And then I'm just going to read that one part of it again. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Now, how could that be? It's a, it's a very puzzling statement to me. Uh, but one I really love, uh, as we chant every day or every weekday here at Alpamata, uh, at the end of morning zazen, um, and as I have uh, learned in much of my life, delusions are inexhaustible. So the second part of the chant uh, that I'm talking about, uh, delusions are inexhaustible, is I vow to free, or I vow to end them. Uh, that seems a bit more difficult, of course, but I'm just thinking of the famous lines attributed to Abraham Lincoln. If I make my enemies my friends, have I not destroyed my enemies? By analogy, uh, how does one end a delusion? By realize, simply by realizing that it's a delusion, simply by seeing through it. And, you know, simple, right? No problem. On the other hand, the, uh, this, the be, being without end, being numberless, delusions have a way of reinforcing themselves. Um, so at any rate, 
for myself, it gives me a kind of a hope to realize that in working to actualize Buddha nature in my life, to get out of the way of the Buddha nature that I know and that I have felt in my body and mind is already there, uh, we have an endless supply of delusions to see through. And as Dogen says, those who have great realization of delusions are Buddhas. So I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna devote my talk to just cataloging a lot of delusions. And I'll be asking you later on to consider your own favorite flavors of delusion in our shared activity this afternoon. Uh, the, the Buddha told many parables and constructed many dialogues to demonstrate that our normal everyday experience of ourselves and our relationship to the world is delusory. Um, his great breakthrough as a teacher came through when he saw that everything and everyone that exists uh, arises simultaneously and passes away ceaselessly and thus, and thus has no independent existence. Uh, ignorance of this reality, he said, causes suffering. Uh, what Stephen Batchelor calls the fourfold task was what the Buddha called um, his single life work, teaching people to comprehend suffering uh, rooted in delusion that itself was rooted in ignorance, to let go of the arising of reactivity on meeting that suffering, to behold the ceasing of that reactivity and to cultivate an eightfold path that is grounded in the perspective of mindful awareness that leads one to become self-reliant in the practice of the Dharma. I heard a talk by Sharon Salzberg recently in which she said that we can take refuge in Buddha. And when we do so, we're not talking about a divinity or a savior, but an actual human being who used human capacities to see through common delusions. If he did it, we can. And this is a point that Dogen makes over and over again and, and other writers as well. Um, one of the parables that the Buddha talked about uh, or told about our mistaken sense of solid, unchanging identity concerned a monk named Nagasena, who meets a king. Nagasena, um, the, the king comes across this monk. He says, who are you? And Nagasena says, well, I can tell you my name, but that's not who I am. And the king says, well, what do you mean? He said, well, consider king. You came here in a chariot. I'm looking at you. You're standing in your chariot. But what is a chariot? Uh, except, well, let's see, he then points to the thing called the chariot and he deconstructs the word, pointing out that the chariot was actually just a temporary assembly of parts, wheels, axles, a platform to stand on, a way to attach horses, etc. Nagasena points out that human beings are also just a collection of parts given uh, a conceptual designation, a kind of shorthand designation. That there are, there's a head, which itself is a conceptual designation, limbs, lungs, intestines, muscles, and so on, bones. Uh, they, they have gradually come to their current arrangement and are gradually changing into other arrangements until they are going to no longer cohere into a human form. Um, and uh, this is a powerful analogy, but it, it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't seem that compelling to me because uh, it seems to focus more on semantics. Like what's, okay, if the word doesn't mean what we think it means, does that mean it's bad? Um, the Buddha also tackled the basics of human experience though in a, in, a, in a more basic way. For example, he asked people to examine what was going on with their senses and, and his, teaching goal in every case was to show that we are not in possession of and, and shouldn't really identify with the things that we think are ours, our hearing, for example. Gave, a, gave many examples of, of dealing with sensory things that, that we think constitute us. And, and he pointed out that yes, that the sense of who we are right now is arising out of the contact that we have with um, um, 
the sensory world around us, what seems to be exterior to us, but that uh, there, there is a mistake uh, or a series of mistakes that are built into that. Uh, when you hear something, as you do thousands of times per day, um, you, it, that hearing reinforces a feeling that, that there is a you during the hearing. But the Buddha says, all that can rationally be said is that a, a faculty of hearing, which seems to be familiar to a, a sense of uh, a continuing self, uh, is, accurate, is interacting with external phenomena. If your hearing was really yours, he said, you could control it. You could turn it off. You could direct it however you want. But of course, this is not our experience. Our hearing goes on whether we want it to or not. We can pay attention to it and stop paying attention to it sometimes. But uh, it's going on by itself. Uh, he extends this logic to the other senses as well. And uh, he also tackled a much more uh, kind of abstract realm of delusory constructions when he talked about the five skandhas or heaps of human experience, of which the senses were only a small part. Uh, there was form, this sense of materiality that I'm in a human body, that I'm, I'm here in this world, I'm not able to walk through the wall because it's solid and I'm solid, those kinds of things. The, um, and then the next skanda feeling, uh, and this is not, uh, I've heard this explained many times at Appamata, this is not feeling like our emotional response to things, but the very, very basic way we have of leaning either forward or back, of, of taking in um, our experience as something beneficial for us or something that we don't want or something that's neutral and then quickly become bored with. Um, and um, the, as he pointed out, this is um, a very, very immediate thing that happens much faster than any rational thought and much faster than any kind of formulation that we that we make uh, and, and that it colors everything. We can't, we can't stop that, just like we can't stop hearing. Uh, and then there's perception, uh, which again is, a, is meeting uh, things which seem to be outside us and which reinforces our sense of separation and our sense of having a, a separate self over and over again. And mental formations, uh, which is when we start to conceptualize our experiences uh, and uh, say, oh, that's the same thing that's happened yesterday, or that is a continuation of what was happening a split seconds ago, or, or something like that. That these conceptualizations uh, blend into a kind of shorthand that goes from the very basics of perception up to abstract thoughts that we can we can go, but they are they are. Um, mental formations. And finally, consciousness, where all the previous four flow together. Uh, in numerous teachings, the Buddha also points out something really important to my modern way of thinking, that consciousness is never a smooth flow, but there seems to be uh, almost a stream of conflicting emotions and, anxi and anxiety. And so I am seeing that I walked in here and left a crucial piece of paper in the other room that I was gonna read from. So I again ask your compassion and indulgence, I'll be right back.
Thank you for waiting. I appreciate it. Uh, I want to say that the, the Buddha also got into a, himself a very conceptual level and very detailed psychological investigation of uh, the sorts of delusions that uh, we uh, repeat over and over again and that give us the sense that is so strong uh, and uh, provides such a mask over the reality that we also know that we already live in, which is Buddha nature, which is connection to everything. Uh, there's a book called The Shape of Suffering by the uh, Theravadan monk and author, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, uh, in which he quotes the Buddha as saying um, that the experience of stress, pain, and suffering is not a simple thing. As the Buddha once observed, we respond to its complexity in one of two ways. And here's the quote. What is the result of stress, monks? There are some cases in which a person overcome with pain, his mind exhausted, grieves, mourns, laments, beats his breast and becomes bewildered. Or one overcome with pain, his mind exhausted, comes to search outside. Who knows a way or two to stop this pain? That person asks. I tell you, monks, that stress results in either bewilderment or in search. Um, and those, these are the issues that the Buddha focused on for 45 years. He said it over and over again. I teach Buddha, I'm sorry, I teach Dukkha and the cessation of Dukkha. Uh, and he enumerated, he, he enumerated the factors, um, starting with the most fundamental ones um, and going to the most complex one. And, you, and this is what's called the uh, 12-fold chain of causality or dependent arising. And it's very abstruse and you will see that it's very circular and there are ways in which it seems to involve jumping from one type of experience to another type of experience from psychology to perception to other things and to reinforce and to, to again, just lots of circular logic. It begins ignorance not seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths of stress, its origination, its cessation, and the path to cessation. Its cessation. Fabrication, and please do not take notes on this. There's, um, there's a simplified version of this in the uh, document I sent out last night that can be a guide for later on. But I, I, the language that, the, that Tanisaro Biko uses here is I think very, very helpful for right now. Uh, fabrication, the process of intentionally shaping states of body and mind. And these processes themselves are three sorts, bodily fabrication, including the in and out breath, verbal fabrication, directing your thoughts and evaluation through the parts of your mind that use words, mental fabrication, that is feeling tones of pleasure and, and, and fabrication of perception the mental labels applied to objects of the senses for the purposes of memory and recognition. Uh, and then three, consciousness of the six sense media. Uh, four, name and form, or as Tanisaru um, uh, Bhikkhu described it, mental and physical phenomena. Again, their interaction between the interior space of mind and the exterior space of phenomena, uh, including feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. And then um, five, the internal sense media, the eyes, the ears, the nose, tongue, body, and intellect, which as he, as he is presenting it here, these, these don't give us direct contact with the world. They are fields that are limited by our, our physical reality. We can only see light in a certain wavelength. We can only hear sound of a certain wavelength. Others are simply invisible to us. We know that now because we have non-human instrumentation that can demonstrate it to us. And we know that bees and butterflies 
see an entirely different world than we do because they are dealing with other types of light than we do. Uh, and, you know, all our confidence of understanding the physical world and the interactions of the physical world has been shaken up over and over again as we realize all the ways in which we, by being in this human body that has, where, where things are kind of averaged out, we're of an average size and we think that, and, and we think that that provides a yardstick for measuring other things, but in fact, uh, that is uh, a delusion that leads to as many errors as it does to um, making sense of the world in many cases, not every time. Um, and then uh, contact at the sense media, this is number six. Um, that is, you know, when a sense organ meets a sense object, the eye meets with a form and gives rise to consciousness. And then number seven, feeling based on contact with the sixth sense media. Number eight, craving for the objects of the sixth sense media. Here we, here we have fallen over from a kind of ontology and phenomenology into the psychological realm uh, and um, craving. And this craving can focus on any of the sixth sense media. We can take on any of three forms we can have sensuality craving, uh, craving for sensual uh, pleasure uh, and, uh, and the, the kind of opposite, becoming craving, uh, craving to assume an identity in the world of experience or non-becoming craving, craving for the end of an identity in the world of experience. Then number nine, clinging, passion and delight, focusing on the five aggregates of form feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness. This clinging can take many different forms. Again, sensuality, views, um, and, and then finally, or not finally, but getting close to the end here, becoming. Becoming on any level, the level of sensuality, the level of form, the level of formlessness. Number 11, birth. The actual assumption of any identity on any of these three levels. And finally, number 12, the aging and death of that identity with its attendant sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. So um, I pointed out the circularity in which these arguments uh, reinforce each other and appeal to each other. Uh, it's, it's obviously a, a very deep kind of examination of human psychology to be able to do this. And it, apparently most of the work of it predated the Buddha and a lot of it went on in Buddhist schools after the time of the Buddha, which have now pretty much disappeared. There were apparently in India for the several hundred years following the time of the Buddha up to 16 or 17 different schools that, that focused on this kind of psychological investigation. And we see echoes of it in the phrases of Dogen, where he says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. But it, his, uh, as pointed to by Dogen, it's a lot more direct and a lot more uh, in the moment than this uh, kind of catalog of psychological states that the, that the early Buddhists were pointing to. Uh, what, I, what I would like to point to right now is what kind of a world is it where birth comes after 10 other steps? What kind of, what, you know, how does this fit with human experience? So the explanation is that when the Buddha was talking about this, he was in fact describing a kind of cosmological situation. It was, a, it was an origin story. And I, so far as I can tell, the only origin story within Buddhism, that the, that the rest of the Buddhist teachings are very focused on liberation within this lifetime and liberation within the capacities of, of the human mind, the, the everyday capacity of the human mind to appreciate, to find, to hunger for, to find and to appreciate truth and to use that as a way of, of liberation. 
uh, and there are, there are ways in which in the Theravadan tradition, the, the, these things are reordered, uh, the, the processes are reordered and, and cut down to five, uh, beginning with birth uh, and then ignorance and, and so on. And then, um, and actually focusing on what happens moment to moment as we construct our identities by our interactions with the world and how those pass away and then get reconstituted in a kind of flow that um, we turn into a, a continuing source of delusion for ourselves. And there, there are analogies to this in, uh, in our daily experience uh, that I think are, are instructive. Um, one of them is breathing. I mean, we breathe, air comes in, we take the oxygen out, we breathe out, we get rid of carbon dioxide that we don't uh, need anymore that's a byproduct of uh, processes in our body. And it's not, and then we have to do it again. I saw in um, the book, The Five Invitations, um, uh, a statement uh, that each of us is about two minutes away from death, but that each in-breath resets the clock. So we are, there are these processes which again require us to start over again. When we get hungry, we eat, and that propels us on to the next thing uh, until we get hungry again. And come back, come here. Um, so I, it, what I've laid out is a pessimistic sounding collection of reasons that seem to boil down to the thought that everything we have ever done and can ever do is so covered up with delusion that we can't find our way out of it. Uh, that it's a, all a story that we have constructed uh, that we just, you know, that we're lost in. Uh, but remember what the Buddha said. Uh, that uh, dukkha either just compounds itself or it can lead us to search. And even, again, as Laurie will describe tomorrow, can provide a scaffolding for healing itself. Um, I want to add a couple of other piles to the heaps that I was describing before that, I, that really speak to me and um, uh, that have been uh, highlighted for me by my reading of a book called um, The Grand Delusion by Steve Hagen. Uh, the Grand Delusion, things we know but don't believe. And he, and he just talks about physical processes. And, and to me, this is, these are all ways in which I am a stranger to myself in my own body and in my own mind. Um, I, I can think, oh, I'm breathing, but really? Um, am I in any way in control of the millions of muscle fibers that expand and contract in my abdomen so that um, I draw air in and, uh, and, and push air out? Not only that, but in each of the cells, uh, that make up these muscle fibers, there are thousands of myosin molecules uh, that uh, convert energy into motion. They, they take ATP from the cell, which is created in the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, as people jokingly say. And they convert that into motion by hooking on to some other proteins called actin and making the cells contract. And they do this, why? just because it's what they do. It has nothing to do with anything volitional by me. And it's, it's hard to see how I'm even connected, except that I know that it's going on in what I, for shorthand, call my body. Um, but the life that is going on seems to be not just at the cellular level, but at the molecular level. Another thing, you know, think of the other cells that are contracting, the other muscles that are contracting to push your blood into your lungs. And then this very complex 
relationship of how oxygen gets into the blood and gets transferred out into the body while carbon dioxide is released so that the blood cells can take on more oxygen. Um, our, and all these, all these muscles pumping and contracting and all these molecular activities happening that feel like they're us, but that's only because we take ourselves of a, of a certain size as a yardstick and uh, measure things against it and kind of smear out all the differences that underlie it. Uh, again, I eat and I drink and my hunger and thirst return. It happens every day. It happens to everybody. Uh, it happened to the Buddha after he attained nirvana. He described hunger and thirst as sources of suffering or, as, or at least as examples that can be used as analogies for the sources of suffering. But even though he had attained enlightenment, those processes went on. And it's instructive to us every day that, that he proceeded through his life knowing that he had, that he had um, engaged in delusion and that he was, he was free of those delusions, even as they were renewing moment by moment. Uh, so we, are, we all live in bodies that need uh, nourishment from outside and that's, you know, something that we share with all living things. All living things on the planet are constructed molecule by molecule by the DNA that makes proteins and other substances and directs processes within individual cells that then form organs and the organs form the chariot, the body that we inhabit and think of as, as ours. But again, if, if anything is alive, it appears to be the DNA which constructs this robe that we sit in. Um, not the body, but the DNA. And, our, and it allows the, it, the body allows the DNA to move around, to nourish, its, to, to, to gain nourishment, and then to reproduce. And that's its main goal. It's just getting out there and, and doing its best to reproduce. Uh, and then finally, I want to talk, and if I am coming to the end, finally, I want to talk about these kind of transpersonal things that are very powerful and um, constitute so much of the delusions that we live in. There's our language. Indo-European languages, like English, and like Pali, even like the language that was spoken by the Buddha during his time, relies heavily, or, or I don't know how else to put it, relies heavily on nouns, on reifying things, reifying processes and treating them as solid and separate. So that's built into our language. So, you know, the fact that we make this mistake over and over again of, of treating things as solid and separate. That is something that comes to us through our culture and our language that um, is very difficult to examine, it takes learning and skill to be able to examine it and see around the edges of it. Um, and uh, I will say that there are some things about growing up as social animals, as mammals. Um, in my own life, I'm thinking of something, but as social, as social animals, as, as mammals, uh, and particularly humans, which have a long period in which they are defenseless things outside the mother's body, but who need constant care while their brain is growing and while they are taking in sensory data in, the, in a completely marvelous and, and um, beautiful way, Nevertheless, that the process of being helpless marks us for the rest of our lives. And that before we have words we were, and we are relying on our caregivers, that we have feelings that result from uh, the way we feel that we can attach to our caregivers. 
Um, and those can color our, our lives. I, I know that there are psychiatrists and psychologists and, uh, and um, mental health caregivers who know a lot more about this than I am. So pardon me if I'm doing violence to uh, important work and, and I, I invite you to add to our discussion this afternoon where I may be going astray. But well, I just wanna say that it, that is very easy and apparently, or, or the evidence is that it's very easy for things to go astray in these early formative times uh, of our infancy and that those actually then mark our lives for the, for the rest of our lives in our, in our relationships with other people and in the way we see the world. Uh, so here I am, I'm almost a 70 year old man. I mean, I'm a man who's almost 70 years old. And um, I have, I, I had loving parents, I had uh, a stable family and so on, but somehow I still came out uh, into my uh, interactions with the world with a kind of frazzled um, propensity to jump from things to things, from, from one thing to another, some what's conceptually called maybe ADD, something like that. Uh, and also a sense that um, uh, I have to hide that from other people and that I cannot trust, I cannot be, I cannot uh, expect that I'm going to have um, support from other people in any interaction that I have. Now, I know better than that as an adult, but at the level at which these parts of myself are still alive, uh, they still hold this belief that I got somehow uh, and carry forward that, uh, that I can't trust the world and that there's something wrong and that's because there's something wrong with me. So, um, The, and, and again, we see this playing out in, in lots and lots of people's lives. And finally, the, the last um, thing I want to point to in this transnational tra or transpersonal space they are, that we all live in is that as humans, as social animals, we have a very strong propensity to want to keep our own genes going by loving and protecting those closest to us, family members, uh, and those who look like us. And that along with that comes a propensity as human beings that, that we are embedded in to um, exclude others who are not in our small group, who don't look like us, who don't use the same language we use, who have different ways of organizing their experience. Uh, and that this um, can be elaborated and has been elaborated countless times in our history into uh, stories that we tell ourselves, which allow us to kill other people, to dispossess other people, to treat other people as subhumans whom we can own and and continue to mistreat and that these are these are delusions that come to us from the mammalian inheritance that nurtured us as you know small infants and then as members of our of our ongoing society so that's pretty dark I'm going to stop the, the dark, the, the, the talk right there at the darkest point. And I will invite you in our uh, activity later today to think of your own, as I said, your own favorite flavors of delusion. Uh, and when I say favorite, of course, I'm using that word as a joke. But those things that, that um, as Flint often has said, are the sorrows and the pains that we hold on to because 
we identify with them so much that if we let them go, we won't see ourselves as existing anymore, that we will that we'll lose something um, really important to ourselves if we let go these delusions. So if you would, be, just spend some time thinking about that, maybe writing about it when we, when we have our activity this afternoon. So thank you very much for your indulgence and, and, and thank you for, for the, I just feel the attention and the, the kindness that's been, that's been given to me uh, as I've been talking. And I invite any questions. It's now 11.48 and let me find the schedule. Is that right? No, 10, 11, 57. So it's not so late as I thought. So we, we have some time for discussion. Uh, I invite any questions. It, it would be uh, best to raise your hand using the, the raise hand feature in chat. Um, or, or I'm sorry, it's in reactions, is it not? Uh, and and um, um, uh, I'm sorry, who is the monitor this morning? Is it Rosemary? It was no, Maria. I'm sorry, Maria. Maria. Maria, pardon me. Thank you. Um, so I see, uh, Maria, would you? Can you call on the participants who have raised their hands? Because I'm, I'm having trouble with my glasses. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I think there may be I a- can, I can try to help you um, if you like, if Maria's not, not available right now, I can- oh. Okay, I, I'm gonna call on Effie first because I saw her hand first. Effie Bradley. Uh, okay, Effie cannot um, uh, unmute herself and I don't think that I am a co-host so I can't do it. Uh, let's see. No, I am a co-host. Hang on. Um, there. Okay, okay. Um, it looks like everyone is able to unmute. Oh, good, Effie, you're unmuted, so good. Yes, I am. Um, I was wondering if you could, um, again, describe what uh, we're going to share this afternoon, um, something about delusion and what we lose when we give our delusion, something like that. You're, you're muted. That's so crazy. Um, I will come back to that later at the, at, in introducing that. Uh, so I would like to just invite other reactions for right now. Okay, okay. Uh, jo Joan. Yeah, Rosemary, yours. Joan. Oh, Joan, thank you, Joan Harmon. Oh, she can't? Okay, wait. There. Okay, uh, oh, good. Uh, well, Joel, thank you for this discussion. It was very dense. Uh, I, I'm uh, working with it. Uh, and so I'm just going to go to the one thing that I know for sure I didn't get. And that was your discussion of feeling. Uh, you were saying it's not as we normally would. And could you talk about it maybe again? Okay. Um, I am not muted. I, I hope everyone can hear me. Um, so in the, in the Buddhist uh, description, what we call or what we call feelings, the, the kind of emotional reactions to uh, events and to things that happen in our lives uh, are actually much farther down the, down the road than what is being used by the, by the Buddhist term here. Feeling is more like what happens in our lizard brain 
in the in the base of our brain, the earliest part of the brain to form, according to evolutionary theorists, uh, and and um, uh, that the, the part that is closest to the autonomic nervous system, uh, which keeps our heart pumping even when we're asleep, keeps us breathing even when we're asleep. And in that part of the brain, apparently, we make judgments about phenomena that occur, uh, that they are beneficial or threatening or that we can ignore them. And so think of yourself driving at 60 miles an hour down the freeway and um, suddenly somebody's coming at you in the in your lane if you if it took time if it required the time that would be needed for you to process that thought before you reacted you might not survive uh, instead your brain tells you this is a dangerous situation make a sudden movement do something to get out of this dangerous situation this has been a great um, uh, it, uh, uh, evolutionary advantage to uh, living creatures ever since it developed uh, it's when, as things could move around that they could get away from uh, predators and uh, and then the opposite that they could prey on other animals that they could you know looking for food they could say oh there's some food over there and go to it really fast before the the slow processes of thought had to be engaged so I that's what I am, is, is my understanding of what the, the Buddhist term of feeling uh, entails. It's this uh, rapid coloration of everything as good for me, bad for me, or something that I can ignore. I see Laurie raised her hand. Uh, yeah. Do you want to add to the Can I add discussion? to that? Yeah. Um... We have done uh, uh, a little exercise that I think it demonstrates it really clearly at Appamata. And um, you can try this yourself. If you get in a group of people, you take the Sangha and then you just have people wander around in the room in the Zendo and notice the impact, what, what comes up for you as you pass each person. And you'll notice that you're on a bodily level, it's not even a thought, I suppose it's a thought too, but I think the thought comes after it. There's an immediate reaction to, oh, I like that person. And you and you kind of lean that way. You kind of, oh, the smile comes on your face. Or if it's someone that you're, not, you're unsure about, you don't know very well or what have you, have a different reaction and you, you immediately kind of lean the other way. You may start walking the opposite direction. I don't mean turning your back on them, but just you lean the other way. Or some people you don't have a reaction to at all. So it's really amazingly immediate, like like Joel said. And you can you can try that out and and just see how that is. How you before you even think then you have a thought about it afterward. Oh I think you know I feel this way because of whatever. But um, you, you're your body just in your brain just makes immediate i don't know if that helps or not but i just thought i'd share that there's a there's a book called thinking fast and slow by danny kahneman uh, uh, eminent philosopher uh, who in, in which he describes this process and he he makes a point that a lot of what we think we decide rationally is in fact decided at this level of what the Buddhist would call feelings. Uh, and that the rational part that goes into what we describe as our, our decisions um, is in fact, after the fact rationalization, that we, that we make up reasons for things that we decide that come out of this level of reaction. That is prior to the, prior to uh, the other levels of perception that as we make sense of them and way prior to the part where we can add words to them and uh, construct a story about why it is good or bad or whatever. But they are 
that these are that, that these are things that that come up out of a uh, operation of the body that um, is not in our control, but that we can see through and we can see as delusory by spending time. And just the, the, the um, just to, to make a little elaboration on what Laurie was saying, I've been walking around the Zendo by myself this morning uh, doing Kinhin and I actually had many thoughts as I was walking. It's like, ah, I miss judging other people while I'm walking in Kenyan. I remember, you know, being here with other people and thinking, oh, that person's lagging. You know, that person's going too fast. You know, and that person's lost in her thoughts and, and should sit up, stand up straight and, and look around, you know. And um, that's, I, I, that was a fun memory to have. <laughs> Of all things. Uh, Joel, do you want to take more questions? Uh, yes, please. We've got uh, eight more minutes. Okay, Becky. You're muted. You're muted. Hey. Ah, you had it. Oh, Becky, you're back muted. You had it, it flicked off for a minute. Could you try one more time? Darn. I've just unmuted you. Hang on, Becky. There we go, I've just unmuted you. Okay. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. That's good, that's good. Um, so, of course I, garbled up the question I had now in my brain, I've garbled it up in, in a way that, you know, I had worked out before, but it seems to me, I'll start with an end seems to me and then ask the question. It seems to me that we live in a continuously more complexified society in terms of speed that it goes at in terms of the number of things that are embraced by the general society that we live in that are actually even inimical to living our vows that and and like completely so that as a person walking in this world without a framework to talk with about these issues and delusion and reality that, that it's, it, is it, when I came, I didn't know if you're talking about delusions the way, I didn't know exactly what you were gonna call delusions, right? But, but there's, there's ones that have to do with the world's idea of delusion and that's not really what you're talking about because you're talking about the ones that we make up to keep away from our selves to hold our life together in is that right is that is that yes and no uh the the things that we make up for ourselves that are built into the structures of our perception and action in the world um, and that are also handed to us by the world you know from our culture from our language etc that that are perhaps close to what the world would call delusion um, and, and and again the 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 reason that i that i wanted to talk about this is pointing back to what dogen says those who greatly realize delusion are Buddhas. This is a crazy statement. And yet, it seems to be, at least to me, important to just be aware of the delusions that I am holding and to use them, or to use that awareness 
to allow me to have a little bit more freedom in my activities so that, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm having trouble coming up with a good example, but just to be able to, to be free from the things that yesterday might have been so convincing to me that I could not have any sphere of action or any freedom of action around that. And that that, again, that that's a process that is renewing faster than the breaths we take, faster than the, um, uh, emotion thoughts that we have. Uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing process that is uh, embedded in a whole lot of delusions, but that provides within them a whole lot of opportunities, renewing over and over again, to turn toward freedom instead of turning toward the delusion or, or, or only accepting the delusion. Does that make sense as an answer? Yes, it does. It does. Thank you. And I probably will come up with some more soon. Okay. <laughs> Good. So I saw Robin's hand raised before. Robin, you're on mute. Uh, okay. Okay. No, no you're uh, on. Okay. I, other people were ahead of me. My question's really quick, and it may be super kindergarten. There seems to be a relationship. Is there a waterfall effect through these five skandhas as well? Like a, a cyclical relationship within these skandhas as well as the larger 14, whatchamacallits? Yeah, yeah, 12, 14, whatever they are. There are analogies in which they these are presented uh, in, in uh, Chan and in Chinese versions of uh, Buddhism as mirrors that are arranged around a candle that mm. are reflecting the central candle and each other uh, and uh, you know picking up light from each other as well uh, that's that, a great metaphor that totally answered my question because there's obviously a relationship between them but it's not even as simple as a cyclical one it's one of those yeah exactly. i think Anne was well, ahead of me. And, and that and that that um uh, ignorance is central to the to, to the operation of each. So I, I will stop calling on people and and ask our monitor to help me out. Yeah, I know Anne was ahead of me and maybe someone else too. Thank you. Yeah, it's Anne next. Anne's up next. Okay. Um, well, mine is yeah a pretty. Um, basic question about why is why is any of this any different than our, the other delusions we're trying to get rid of and why is the idea that buddha nature is inherent and there is no separate self why are those ideas and this turning toward freedom any different than previous ideas? Why are we not just putting another hat on top of our head? I mean, I'm reminded of that line in the Shen Shen Ming about the, the more you think about these things, the further you are away from it. I'm thinking you, you got me on that one. It is, yeah, why privilege this set of ideas? Why privilege something as positive and others as negative? And as St. John says in the Shinsu name, trying to differentiate between what is good and bad is the primal disease of the mind. I guess the reason that that I would say for myself is that it points to a way to examine what I'm believing, and that's all. Uh, and 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 that that is a that that's a that's a container big enough to include 
the things that I'm wanting to go toward and the things that I'm not wanting to go toward and so on. But what you, what your question is pointing to is a, is a much subtler level even than this very subtle level of discrimination that was being described by these teachers from the past. Do you have any further thoughts on how not to put another hat on your on your head? Laurie, were you wanting to say something then? Sorry. Um, yeah, I was just gonna just gonna say that. Um, yes, there are a lot of de delusions, but the central issue here is um, truth, actually, truth of life as it is, what's really going on and what is what is correct view. It's not merely just saying everything is wrong, but what is really going on to see beyond just our our enchanted way of looking at things. And and by seeing what's really going on, we can go to the next step, we can have a thought about which direction to take and take do it with skillfully. Does that help at all, Anne? Or not? I, I don't think we're talking about right and wrong so much as what is reality. What's true? John? I'm listening. I'm sorry, is there a question for me? Uh, I think Joan just wants to add something. Oh, Joan, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. Thank sorry, you. Uh, and I'm having trouble. I just wanted to add, you know, when these things happen, I always think of the middle way. And uh, it's, yes, all these thoughts are just illusions. They're just stuff in our heads. And yet, that doesn't mean we shouldn't think. We use our reasoning to make decisions and so we don't throw out all thoughts but we do understand their illusions but then we also use that to our benefit when we can and and i'd call that the middle way so some of these things that the buddha is pointing out are thoughts that we we should keep thinking about as we look at things as we look at the thoughts that are delusions. I don't know if that's clear to anyone but me. <laughs> um, is there... I, I have one thought that I would like to add also just to what Joan was saying and what and Laurie also was pointing to in this, this notion of reality. And that is the Buddha pointed out that we can try things out. We can see in our lives whether things uh, make us happy or unhappy in a, in a in a broad sense of happiness that is according with uh, a, a, a free life uh, that is not sunk in pain and that is not uh, driving us from one side of the room to the other trying to get away from the pain that we are that we can we have experiences that uh, show us what that freedom looks like. And um, that that has something to do with the answer for what you were asking about again. Uh, that, um, at least for me, that, that has something to do with it. Thank you, Joel. It's Effie next. Just unmuted you, Effie. Effie, yeah, I think I just didn't put my hand down from earlier. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Rosemary. Oh, okay. Um, so I just wanted to add a little something to the question of sensation. Um, was it was it sensation? I'm sorry, feeling, feeling, and in the sense of reaction and what Joel you were talking about in terms of the brain. 
and that the idea of, I think it could be helpful, the idea of what's dangerous or what's safe is a lot of times with what draws us towards or away. And um, yeah, as a therapist, you know, the um, tra trauma in the history, it's much easier for me to um, conceptualize the whole thing because when that's there in that early year period, as you were saying, Joel, the current situation, which is not in fact dangerous, that that part of the brain see, feels it that way. And then, and that's the delusion. And, and sorting that out is very hard, but it's possible. And then um, when, you know, you can see that the, the brain wanting to do that, the heart rate is beating, you know, fast and all. You, um, it can turn that part of the brain off when you connect it to what that history was. So that's a whole big process, but I just felt the idea of the safety and danger could be helpful. Thank you. There's a book called Buddha's Brain, uh, Rick Hansen and Richard Menzies, uh, that I quote from over and over again, but, and, and I should have mentioned it in, as part of my talk, but they, he points out that there's an evolutionary advantage to humans and indeed to all living creatures, but particularly for humans, to have a negative bias, to remember everything that bad that's ever happened and, and hang on to it and to let the good things that happen slide by. Because if you miss something good, that's a shame. But if you miss something important that is dangerous, you're, you are in danger. And uh, so our brains tend to organize around that. And, and what they argue is that, that that builds up like plaque over time in our brains and that it um, shapes our thoughts in ways that are more and more and more constricted. So, that's Thank you. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Joel. Um, we have two minutes left. So I don't know. Would you like to one more person or would you like to finish that? Uh, thank you. I was looking at Sunday's schedule, so uh, that's why I was confused about the time. Uh, well, two minutes is mostly gone now, so let's relax for a minute. And then at um, 10.40, we have a, a period of zazen. Um, Kinhin, Zazen, and then lunch. So uh, I will ring the bell at 10.40 for a second. And again, my deep thanks. <laughs>